0: Hello again, friends. Welcome or welcome back to The Overview Effect with James Perrin, the podcast all about taking a bigger perspective on our world and having those big picture conversations on environmentalism and humanity and all the important things. I'm your host, James Perrin, and I would like to start by acknowledging that this episode was recorded on Lutruwita country. I want to pay respects to the traditional custodians of that beautiful land and in fact all First Nations people all around Australia. Now this episode follows on from my last episode in that it was recorded in Tasmania. I had just come out of the Tekina rainforest and I headed down to the CSIRO Marine and Atmospheric Research offices in Hobart to speak with a scientist who is working on new ways to link science with other sources of knowledge, including traditional wisdom. Now, it's fitting that this episode is being released on World Oceans Day. Happy World Oceans Day, everybody. Because she is a marine, atmospheric, and climate scientist who has studied ecosystems ranging from Indonesia to Antarctica. In this episode, we talk about her childhood experiences that built her deep connections with our ocean and really led her down this path of wanting to study and protect our marine ecosystems. We talk about the way science is presented, including the pressure that environmental scientists can feel when delivering bad news and perhaps feeling the need to sugarcoat it. We talk about her current role as a transdisciplinary researcher and knowledge broker, and we break down firstly what on earth that is and means but secondly why that role is important and why that's a thing which is really key this includes discussing the limitations of science as we know it and use it in our current westernized and corporatized system she shares the importance of what she calls two-eyed seeing and this is not trying to blend science with traditional knowledge but really acknowledging that you can see the world through the lens of science in one eye, as well as traditional knowledge and wisdom in the other. You know, this is really important. As someone who comes from a STEM background myself, it's really can be interesting at times to have these conversations with people about science being a tool in our arsenal and not the only way to see the world. You know, so this is a really key conversation. We also talk about gender diversity in science because she also co-founded an organization called Homeward Bound, which is a program to empower women and grow female leadership in the STEM community and why that is critically important as well. Oh, and on top of that, she was also the 2020 Tasmanian of the Year and formerly a Rhodes Scholar. So, you know, there's that too. <laughs> Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Jess Melbourne-Thomas. Jess, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for, you know, having me here in your office and sharing some of your time overlooking the bay on a beautiful sunny day in Hobart. It's amazing. Pretty special here. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah, I have absolutely fallen in love with Tasmania and I'm definitely coming back. (laughs) Um, So, I'm here to talk to you about all things science, climate science um, and I guess how we can use that to, well, you'll be able to share much more on this, but how we can use that in our society to inform better decision-making and leadership and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But I want to just start with a bit about you and understand a bit about how you got to where you are. And the question I always ask all of my guests as the lead-in is the premise of the show, which is um, this overview effect. So this is an experience that astronauts have when they first go up into space, they look back on Earth and they describe this real connection and overwhelming sense of awe and emotion with our our world and all the creatures and beings on it and especially I find that especially profound thinking of astronauts and how you know rational and scientific they must be and how they have this described describe this paradigm shift in their mindset so I wanted to ask you have, you have you had moments or experiences that have similarly shaped the way you see the world
1: yeah. And I, I love that analogy. I think it's really powerful. I, I have to say, you know, I've been incredibly lucky growing up in Tasmania, spending so much time in the bush and on and under the water to, you know, I guess kind of always have felt I had that connection with the natural environment, um, you know, and the opportunity to travel to different parts of the world and, you know, and to experience that in different ways. But, but I think... Probably the, amongst the most profound experiences have been those ones underwater where, you know, diving in a kelp forest, a giant mm. kelp forest off the east coast of Tassie or, you know, these incredible drop offs we, we dived on in Indonesia where the reef just kind of stretches away from you, you know, down for, for hundreds right. of metres. That you know, it is that's just completely unique to be in that environment where and I think also the um, the similarity there to be you know, you're it's an alien environment for us as people right we're you know yeah we're we're vulnerable and we're dependent on you know this these pieces of equipment and it's not it's not our world and yet it is and so I think yeah certainly that those underwater experiences have really been formational Mm. um, for me
0: amazing and so that from a very young age really led you on the path to wanting to study marine and ocean science
1: yeah, totally. My brother yeah. tells a story. I don't actually remember it, so it, it could be made up. But apparently Dad used to hold us by ankles and, like, dunk us in, <laughs> in rock pools <laughs> with a mask and snorkel, <laughs> So we could... <laughs> Yes, that's awesome. Well, we did. We learned to dive, scuba dive with him. and um, That could
0: have gone one of two ways. It could have <laughs> made really you true, a marine yeah. scientist or completely go that's in- right, inland. That's right, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> it was well-intentioned, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> awesome. Um, and I love how you described that because um, you're right. So an astronaut looking down on Earth might have that alien experience, mm. but you're right, you can get that going deep underwater or... Deep into a forest, or whatever it is, it's a, high
1: it's a up a mountain. Totally, yeah. yeah, I think so, and and certainly, you know, with the oceans, that kind of appreciating that so much of our world is is mm. ocean, <laughs> yeah. and yet you know we spend so little, have so little opportunity to be in that environment and understand how important it is. So yeah, yeah.
0: Well, you spent a lot, as much time as any terrestrial creature <laughs> can probably <laughs> um, studying and understanding. The ocean and marine and Antarctic mm-hmm. ecosystems. Can you paint the picture a little bit as to, I guess, what you've studied and you know what you've seen? And I guess I'm, I'm expecting that you've probably seen some pretty destructive impacts from humanity as well. Can you kind of describe?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, and maybe the the easiest way to tell that is kind of my journey, mm, yeah. <laughs> which, you know, after being dunked in the rock pools, um, I spent <laughs> – and when I was a bit older, I spent a lot of time working in the tropics and, and studying uh, coral reef environments and, you know, incredibly fortunate to just have had some amazing experiences, particularly working in the Coral Triangle around Indonesia and the Philippines, which is basically the – you know, contains the most – diverse um, assemblages of, of anywhere in the world, um, oh. underwater and terrestrial, just incredible number of species of corals and fish and turtles, you know, just amazing environments. But also, um, you know, people talk about the, the canary in the coal mine in terms of the impacts of climate change and certainly, you know, s- seeing the impacts of, of coral bleaching events on those reefs and, and elsewhere, I think, you um, certainly is a, <laughs> yeah. a, a strong indication of, of um, how our activities are impacting those environments. And also, you know, it was really interesting to work um, with with communities in Indonesia and to think about, you know, their dependency on, um, on those environments, but also learn about, you know, um, why people might Look to destructive fishing or you know blast fishing and and, and cyanide fishing and and how um, you know we can help find alternatives i guess to to those kinds of activities that have um, impacts on on the yeah. environment yeah so un-
0: understanding that the, they're not bad people that are doing these things they're that's part of the system that they are in
1: yeah you know? absolutely yeah. and you know people that don't have alternatives and mm. Um, And I guess just that absolute contrast, you know, I was coming to Indonesia as a, as a privileged road scholar from the University of Oxford and just that absolute contrast in how much we had and how much they had and, and um, yeah, yeah, helping to, to, and, and really that was, um, I guess, set me on the path towards thinking about how we can build through our science um, tools to help people make decisions about the way that they manage those environments. Um, mm. And so, so that, I guess, is the link to um, working in, an, in Antarctica, the, the opposite yes. <laughs> extreme around temperature, but the link was, was using um, mathematical models as, as tools to help think about the way that um, systems might be impacted and how we might design management approaches to, to better protect them. Um, so yeah, amazing opportunity to work in Antarctica again, you know a whole bunch of stories about <laughs> yep. experiences there um, and and to some degree the impacts of climate change um, are, are harder to see in Antarctica um, it's it's the Arctic that so far has really borne the brunt of, mm. in terms of the visible impacts of of climate change um but you know just in the news last week there was another story about a big ice shelf that's breaking up and and (laughs) we really are seeing quite rapid changes in antarctica yeah uh, is it
0: it hard being a, a an ecosystem scientist an environmental scientist and feeling like you have to deliver bad news all the time you know and is there a bit of a Pressure is not the right word. Is there a bit of like a intent or obligation to try to package it up in a digestible format for the public?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's a, it is a tricky balancing act. I, I think that um there was some work that came out um last month, um you know led by some um, prominent ecosystem scientists in Australia that basically said you know we it's really important that scientists don't. Mm, (laughs) Sugarcoat what they're seeing, Um, and that you know actually by doing that we're we're putting even more at risk, Um, you know. And I think there is possibly a bit of a tendency to, in that context, dampen down what we're seeing. And Mm. and and we published another study um, a couple of weeks ago that looked at ecosystem collapse um, in Australia, right from the tropics through to Antarctica, and we. Um, examined 19 different ecosystems and in all of them found evidence of these really profound changes um so i think for me i guess the answer to that question is that um the hope comes into well, what do we do about it right and that's where so we're not we're not telling a different story about what's already happening but um you know but providing options to actually do something about that before it's too late (laughs) and there i think we you know i'm naturally a bit of an optimist and i think there are reasons to have have hope that we can do more
0: Mm. well is that perhaps that's a good segue into explaining a bit about your current role because it's i'm sure you get this all the time it's very (laughs) interesting title transdisciplinary researcher and knowledge broker yeah um which is yeah which is an interesting title hey it makes me think I guess the word broker makes me kind of think of like mortgage or yeah, stockbroker, yeah, yeah. who act as a, an agent between you mm-hmm. know an investor and a customer. So is that a bit about what it's about, or c- can you tell me what exactly is it? And I guess why did this role come about? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah and it, it is a mouthful. <laughs> and can sometimes shut down conversations, I don't <laughs> You just
0: get a, at a party, you just get some of smiles and yep, nods. Yep, yep. <laughs>
1: um, and part of, part of the reason why it's such a long title is because it is two roles. The mm. And you're right, the knowledge broker part is about, um, you know, helping to be a bridge basically between knowledge and policy and practice um, and recognising that some of the – more traditional models we have for um connecting our science to the people that need to use it to make decisions or you know the things we were talking about before you know which might be publishing in a peer-reviewed paper and Mm. and kind of expecting that somebody might pick it up and read it and do what they need to do is is just not going to cut it
0: one of the six people that read it be the right person to act
1: upon it <laughs> and the problems are really urgent and you know particularly in the climate change and and sustainability space they're quite complex um and and so there's I, yeah, increasing recognition of of roles I guess for people like me to help connect the dots and to translate the science um in a way that it um it can be more effectively used to make decisions. Mm. Um, And then the transdisciplinary part, I guess, is the, in some ways, the inverse of that because transdisciplinary research is where we bring in other sources of knowledge that aren't just the science. So that might be, um, it it might be local and traditional knowledge. It might be industry knowledge. It might be policy expertise and recognising that we get, again, more effective outcomes in terms of, affecting change if we can bring those things um, mm. together and so so that's the transdisciplinary part is right. is I guess doing the brokering in reverse <laughs> to some degree how do we bring that information into our science processes more effectively?
0: Yes okay and so are you then also working with or talking to businesses and government and that sort of is that the kind of the conversations yeah. that you're having in that leadership?
1: Yeah, sort of yeah, role. yeah. Working, we talk about um, knowledge co-production and co-design of the science. So it's working with stakeholders very generally, which you know again includes traditional owners, mm. um, people working in industry, different levels of, of government decision making, um, to you know to undertake the research in a way that actually mm. <laughs> helps them address the questions that they yeah. have. Yeah.
0: Okay. Cool. Well, it's um. It's refreshing to hear that because, um, you know, this whole podcast and this whole concept is kind of like stepping back and seeing the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And I think I I said this kind of sheepishly to you via email, but I feel a bit nervous like saying this to such an esteemed (laughs) scientist, but I actually feel that science or at least science as we know it and use it or in recent times um, can be limited, you know, and we've kind of lent... We've probably, and I come from a STEM background myself, so I feel like we've kind of lent into a um, a, a bit of a reductionist mindset a little bit with mm. science sometimes, and it's not science itself, it's kind of the machine around science that we've created, I suppose, um, but you're absolutely right, we have other tools, and science is one of them, it's absolutely a very valuable tool, but we have traditional knowledge and experience mm. wisdom. We have... Intuition, You know, mm-hmm. we know that you could cut down a rainforest and plant two trees for every one you cut down. But we know, you know, heart and gut that cutting that rainforest down is not the right thing. Um, how do you feel about that as a scientist, yeah. about someone saying kind of that to you and the potential limitations of yeah. some of the ways yeah. that we're using science?
1: Yeah, yeah. I do have to dis- disagree. I'm not an esteemed yeah. scientist. <laughs> <laughs> But on the rest, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think, in terms of kind of the objectivity of science, the method itself, the scientific method, or at least our Western construct of that, mm. um, does need to be objective because you know that that's the process by which we can we can test things, right? Mm. And um, you know, and and untangle untangle the facts and you know, (laughs) in a world where um, fake news and misinformation is um, becoming pretty rampant. I think that's actually really important that we have that integrity. But in terms of, you know, how does research more generally um actually help us tackle some of these really complex and urgent problems in the world and you know particularly climate change Mm. (laughs) i think that concept of they talk about um i printed out a picture but that's not much (laughs) you (laughs) sort (laughs) of like interweaving of threads of these different types of knowledge to to um develop a a better picture of Mm. you know what might be needed to address um problems and 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 maintaining the integrity of those threads so we're not um, you know we're not trying to to merge the things together or have um, science encompass all the others somehow they talk about um, another great analogy is two eyed seeing where you you know with one eye you're seeing through the western science lens and the other could be what is um traditional indigenous mm. knowledge and it's not about um, You know, one subsuming the other, it's about the advantages you get from seeing through those two different lenses. And so um, I I think absolutely that's essential for, um, you know, for for many of these more complex problems. Not to say that um, the more traditional, disciplinary, strict Mm. scientific method type of research is not still critically important for so many, you know, vaccine development (laughs) instance <laughs> um we'd, we'd need that but there's these different i think better recognition that there is d- d- these different types of approaches that mm. better fit different problems
0: yeah i hadn't heard of that before the mm. two i'd seen mm. and that, that's really interesting because um yeah I, I agree i think you're right and it's an interesting one isn't it when you think of environmental or ecosystem science and the you're right the scientific method is what it is you Mm. know it's it's designed to be objective and that's the whole point of it um but it's interesting when you start learning about say earth system science and you start understanding and learning how everything is kind of linked (laughs) and impacts everything else yeah and we impact everything and um it's a it's a really interesting concept to go well how can we be fully objective when we are emotionally connected to the oceans and we care about them and we are impacting them and it's quite an interesting conversation to have and then you even get into the rabbit hole of potentially like quantum theory where they say <laughs> you know observation <laughs> affects reality and yeah. then it's a whole nother ball game right <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but but it's really refreshing to hear that the this thinking to, to Not blend, as you say, but look through multiple lenses Mm. at the same issue. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And do you think this is the way that um, a lot of science and research is heading, trying to bring in some of these more humanistic and emotive elements?
1: I think, you know, there's this kind of um, emerging field around um, socio-ecology, for instance, which is recognising that it doesn't really make sense to try to treat the human parts and the ecological parts separately. We have to think of it as an interconnected system and so mm. we, have, we actually have in Hobart a centre for marine socioecology that brings an amazing group of people together across different organisations CSIRO and the university and the Antarctic Division to, to think uh, in a much more interdisciplinary way um, about some of those problems and I mm. think you know um, within that community and more generally there there is increasing recognition that um, you know, you have, there's heart in it too, right? <laughs> we yeah. all care about these things, and we care about um, what the world m- might look like for future generations. And you know, the the stakes are high in terms of um, being able to see our science translated into action. On climate change, and you know, and conservation, and mm. um, and yeah, you—it's it, impossible to be objective yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. on those things. Um, but um, but I think, yeah, as I say, I think the community is is doing a good job of of kind of figuring out how to to achieve more momentum around that. Mm. Mm.
0: And I guess kind of linked to this theme a little bit is. Um, the work that you've done co-founding homeward bound is that right Can mm. you um, explain a little bit about what that is and I guess why why you started that
1: yeah yeah um, I'm just trying to think of the <laughs> the angle to <laughs> <laughs> I might talk first about diversity in, yeah, yeah, in science do. because and that you know that is absolutely at the heart of homeward bound and a whole bunch of other really great initiatives that um, that are, are trying to increase um Uh, representation not only of women but also of, um, you know, um, people from diverse genders and and cultures and nationalities and Indigenous scientists um, in in science. And there's a whole bunch of barriers still to to overcome but there's definitely really strong evidence that more diverse scientific teams (laughs) deliver better science Mm. uh, because they bring in different perspectives. And if we're talking about solving urgent problems then you know we we're absolutely going to need different ways of thinking about the world and and you know possibilities for finding novel solutions so so for me that is you know a fundamentally important issue and Homeward Bound um, came about because of some work back in 2014 to develop an international network of women in polar science and and obviously the, the polar sciences typically have had a <laughs> very poor representation of yeah. women and and the Arctic and Antarctica have, have not been places for women at all until really? relatively recently and there are on, still ongoing problems in terms of um, having good representation of, of women in, in polar science and, and many other fields.
0: Yeah. Why do you think that is...
1: Um, I think part of it is linked to the kind of heroic era of Antarctic exploration. It was uh, absolutely a domain um, for men. Um, Now, you know, there's a a bunch of issues, not least that if you go to Antarctica, often you'll go for, you know, minimum two to three months um, or even over winter and and that is harder for people with caring responsibilities. And so, you know, there's an issue there around Mm. opportunities um but you know so so the the other side of that is as you get to the more senior levels in the sciences we we also see this significant drop off of representation of women and there's really high i think it's 60 percent attrition rate in stem in australia from junior levels to more senior levels oh. and so Homeward Bound was very much about, well, you know, given the urgency of of the problem of climate change particularly, we just can't afford to have (laughs) half the voice missing (laughs) um, at the decision-making table. And um, and so the idea is to build a, a global network of women in STEM... Um, who can work together to support each other in, in in leadership and in connecting our science to climate change decision
0: making? Yeah, wow. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. And and so, how's it going? So has it? It's been quite a few years now. Homeward bound. Have you yes, seen? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, program? yeah.
1: So what it is practically is yeah. a, a, um, an um annual program which um includes a a leadership journey to Antarctica. Wow. Um, (laughs) Amazing. I haven't been on one yet, though. (laughs) Small children, and as I said, (laughs) um, being able to go south. But um, yeah, so the first one went in 2016, the first voyage, um, and there's a documentary about that which was um, released recently. Um, and there's been um, three voyages since then, and then there's um, another two cohorts um, that are, are working together at the moment. So the vision, the grand vision of um, Fabian Dattner, who was the co-founder of uh, um, Homewood Bound, was to you know have a, a network of a thousand women globally who'd been on this journey together over ten years, mm. um, and who you know who could elevate the voices of of women in STEM. So yeah, it's going really well. (laughs) Awesome.
0: Well, I'm, um, my, I think maybe you're being diplomatic in maybe potentially not saying it. So I'm going to say is that, or at least my experience (laughs) from observation is that women tend to be, um, they think in, uh, I think, more connected ways. They certainly are a more connected community. They're more in touch with their emotions. They talk about things other than just, sport and weather. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, I think there's a theme here with what you were talking about before with seeing through multiple lenses, the thread of Mm. kind of science and traditional knowledge. I think women are really well placed to be able to take that and elevate it to the next level. Um, My experience working with women is that they, they tend to be much more community minded and think much more laterally than men. I don't know if
1: you <laughs> Yeah, agree I th- with that. yeah, I, uh, in general it's yeah, very general sweeping statement Yeah, and it statement. is hard to yeah. make generalizations but yeah, I think yeah, I think certainly um in terms of structural things that enable women in science and more generally to kind of fulfill their potential um mm. Being able to work in that networked way, and I think there's evidence around this is is much better. Um, mm. and and for you know for some men as well, but you know the the structures that we have in our um scientific institutions are sometimes biased towards not enabling that kind of mm. um, collective, Working, I think I don't know that there's good evidence that leadership styles are gendered. I think mm. um, that's that is a misconception. But in terms of the way that um, that women work, yes, I think that's that's mm.
0: true. And it's it's another interesting concept is like that science, I guess in recent history has really rewarded specialization mm. and going deeper and deeper and deeper on really specific topics. But what we're talking about is going more lateral, right? Yep. Yeah. In, in a whole range of tr- disciplines transdisciplinary yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's a really interesting evolution of mm. the way in which modern society is using mm-hmm. science and how mm-hmm. it's evolving
1: yeah absolutely yeah. yeah
0: yeah I guess if we can if there's something we can maybe someone's listening that has really Absorbed all of the the climate and marine and Antarctic and Arctic science. Who's really felt the the impacts of things like the IPCC reports, which you worked on, <laughs> um, and has really kind of felt the heaviness and the weight of that. And think maybe they feel a bit helpless or hopeless. Mm. Um, what would you say, as someone who is who studies this and is talking and living and breathing this this world day in day out? What would you say to that person, um, and what could they potentially do?
1: Mm. And it's uh, it's a really important question and one that that I kind of get asked a lot in lots of different contexts. Well, you know what what can we actually yeah. do? Um, and you know some some really great advice that is not mine, but you know um, is around we don't need to do things perfectly right in terms of reducing waste and doing things that help reduce emissions. It's about, it's about millions of people doing things as well as they can and potentially imperfectly, not, not a few people, (laughs) you know, living waste free and, Mm. um, and, and bike riding everywhere. So I, you know, I think we kind of know those things that we can all try to do. Mm. Um, I think, we we need to recognise that there is this increasing weight on society, and certainly on you know on the on new generations. About <laughs> they talk about eco grief, yeah. um, and that's going to be a, a you know a, a big issue that that we'll need to to tackle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think absolutely you know, having an education system that helps kids learn about what is changing and and helps them learn to be problem solvers is going to be really critical. Mm. Um, I know I'm kind of skirting around your question because it is a tricky one. If we knew the answer, wouldn't that be great? I have seen some interesting evidence that um, kind of generally speaking in terms of people um, feeling connected to natural environments um there's not a strong need to have actually been there that watching a documentary can mm. be almost the equivalent to you know people deeply care about Antarctica and yet mm. really very, not very many of us um, have have been there. and so you know I think and as we see more technology like um, virtual reality you know becoming more available, I think there are really powerful ways that more people can be connected with Mm. natural environments. And, um, and in that way, you know, if, if more of us care (laughs) um, we have stronger impetus to, to protect those environments. Yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah. It's, it's interesting to hear you say that when talking about caring and connecting Mm. on a, on a emotional or personal level, whether it's physically or or virtually. Um, And so it it just goes to show, I think that it's not, it's not just about the numbers and Mm. the report, but it's also not just about watching a doco. You kind of need both together, right? You need to know, oh, wow. Okay. There are all these, um, you know, the rainforest is under threat of being destroyed or the Antarctic ice shelf is melting. I'm hearing and understanding and, and seeing reports about the impacts that we're having, and I saw that on a dock, or I had the opportunity to visit it, and I care about it. And those yeah. two things together, yeah. I think, seem to be a bit of a catalyst. Whereas if you just have one without the other, it's mm. maybe it's not resonating with people.
1: I think as you're much. right. Yeah, I think you're right. And citizen science as an emerging, really powerful tool for you know um, connecting people, but also empowering them you know to do something Mm, (laughs) that connects with a what we understand and and b what we might do about it and there are some really fantastic examples of citizen science initiatives for the marine environment that um you know have really big followings and 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 important um scientific outputs that can then be used to support decision making so Mm. it'd be really great to see even more of that yeah
0: yeah Awesome. Amazing. Well, I feel like I could talk to you about all things kind of science and STEM <laughs> and engineering and also just, you know, gush over how beautiful Tasmania is. Uh, but uh, I think I might let you get back to your very important work, but not before I say thank you so much for your time and sharing what you do and your experience and your, your wisdom, but also for the work that you do. You know, it's, it's very important. People that care about all of these ecosystems and spend their day in day out working to you know make essentially protect them or, or make the world a better place it's really important so thank you so oh, much jess my pleasure <laughs> <laughs> thank you awesome that was good cool how did that feel
1: yeah it was good, good? they're really good